If you were not at the conference, it's okay. This is the final message of our conference, if you were not a part of it. Uh, first of all, I say go back and listen to it. It was incredible, so go back. Those are already posted, so go listen to it. But if you weren't a part of it, it's okay. Uh, this sermon will stand alone as, as is. And it certainly is a follow-up to last uh, Sunday's sermon, which was a call, to, just a real simple call, love God, love neighbor. That was the, uh, that was the passage, the passage. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Here's the question in all this. In all the love God, love neighbor, here's my question. Who's loving me? And I don't say that in a selfish narcissistic, vain way, but in a very legitimate way. You were made, yes, to love, but to also be loved. And the former is dependent upon the latter. Meaning, you have to have love in order to love. Love is not something that is merely self-produced. It cannot be. Love is a precious commodity. It is an actual resource. Love to the soul is what food is to the body. You can't self-produce energy. If there's no food coming in, then eventually there will be nothing left to give. Love is to the soul what money is to the bank account. If there's nothing coming in, then eventually there will be nothing left to give. And so it is with love. All this neighbor love talk is contingent upon a healthy reserve of love in your soul. That is to say, he who has not been loved has no love to give. And so what I want to do here at the end of this fruitful week, an amazing conference, with all of its wonderful convictions and applications, is to fill our tanks back up with love. Who's loving me? The answer to that is God loves me. And God loves you. And out of the abundance of the fullness of His love for us, we love neighbor. The source of our neighbor love is God's neighbor love. But does God really love you? And by love, what I mean is love. Not tolerate. One of the repeated themes of our conference, if you are with us, is this whole notion of tolerance and how weak it is. How thin it is. Tolerance is the great ambition of our day and it's not working. And it's not working because our, t- our neighbors don't need to be tolerated. They need to be loved. Well, the problem is that when most Christians conceive of God's disposition toward them, it is one of tolerance, not love. There's a pretty big basketball game last night that I was very pleased with. This sermon was a lot more fun when Mark was uh, sitting next to me. Uh, for this part. I don't know if he's in here. Sometimes he's in the back. I don't see him, but... Yeah, he doesn't want to hear it again, yeah. Uh, 
it was, it was, last night was really fun for me, okay? Uh, it, it, it was doubly fun because it was Tennessee, and for those of you who don't know, um, uh, but if you know Mark, you do know, um, I had the pleasure of working daily with a very big Tennessee fan. But I noticed uh, yesterday, and you may have noticed yesterday uh, at the conference that Mark had a UK sweater on, which I thought was very kind and culturally sensitive of him and all of that. Um, but is there anyone who actually believes that he wanted Kentucky to win that game? I heard one of you ask him why he was wearing a Kentucky uh, sweater on the day they played Tennessee. He said, well, you know, I'm pastoring in Kentucky. I, I can't make my people mad by wearing orange. Again, very nice. But does anyone actually believe he wanted Kentucky to win that game? It's not that he's against Kentucky. Here's the thing about Mark. It's not that he's against Kentucky. He's just not fully for Kentucky. That is, he has to like him because he ministers in Lexington. They're his people, he says. So he has to. So he wears the Kentucky stuff. He uses we when talking about Kentucky. He goes to Kentucky games. He cheers. But he ain't fooling any of us. We know. We all know his heart is elsewhere. We all know that deep down he tolerates Kentucky because he has to, but Kentucky does not have the fullness of his love. Do you know what I think? I think we think God is for us like Mark Randall is for Kentucky. It's not that he's against us. It's not that he hates us. It's not that he's rooting against us. It's that he tolerates us because he has to. Well, Jesus died for them. They believed in Jesus, so I I have to have them. They're my people. I have to be with them. So I'm going to put up with them and pretend to be for them. Deep down, we fear that God tolerates us because he has to, because the gospel's making him tolerate us or something like that. But do we have the fullness of his heart and love? If that's how you conceive of God, you will never, ever have the love required to love your neighbor. If you only believe that God tolerates you, then you will only at best tolerate your neighbor. So this morning, I want to give us a vision, not of God's tolerance of you, but of God's love for you. And I thought of this text from Ephesians 2, which just these two verses are so profound in the depths of the way it articulates God's love. So I thought of them from Ephesians 2. And I'm going to break it up two ways. We're going to look at the motivation of God's love for us and the extent of God's love for us. The motivation. I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to get technical here with with, with, with the language. According to our verse, when you look at this verse... What is the motivating factor behind God's love for you? The wording is actually fascinating. It says this, because of, so we know because, therefore we know he's telling us why God is this. Because of the great love with which he loves us. Now that's the ESV, that's the Pew Bible that we use and many of you use. 
And the ESV really captures the nuances of the Greek here in this verse. The NIV, if you're using that, probably says something like this. Because of his great love for us. The ESV is more accurate to the Greek. It captures what it's saying here. Because of the great love with which he loved us. It is so subtle it makes all the difference in the world. God loves you because of what? Because of you? No. That's not what this says. It's because of his great love that is then directed toward you. And that little nuance makes all the difference. Here's why. The world operates like this. Because of you, I will choose to love. God operates like this. Because of love, I choose you. Do you see the difference in those? The way the world works is this. Because of you, because of what you offer me, I will choose to love. Because of how you look, because of how you act, because of what you believe, because of common shared interests, because you belong to the same political tribe as me, because of what this will do to my status and reputation, because of your smarts, because of your humor, your money, because of whatever it is, because of you and what you have to offer me, I will choose to love you. And then there's God who works this way. Because I have chosen love, I choose you. The foundation, in other words, the foundation of love according to the world is the recipient of love. The foundation of love according to God is the giver of love. He himself is the foundation of his love for you. God's love for you is motivated by who he is, by his very nature. You see, God is love. Fact. God is love. I said that love is not something that we can self-produce, but God can, and he does. He is the fount of love. He is the source of all love, which means he has to love. He must express love, and we are the means of satisfying his love. This is an entirely new paradigm of love. The world's paradigm of love is this. That I am loved if I am lovable. Well, if that is so, you will never be loved. At least not to the fullest extent. At least not in any authentic way. Only to the degree that you can fool people into loving you. If the motivation of love is me and how lovable I am, then essentially my only hope to be loved by you is to trick you is to trick you and others into loving me by concealing the endless things that aren't lovable about me. So in this way, love becomes inauthentic at best or impossible at worst. And the reason why we have such a hard time believing that God truly loves us is because we apply that worldly paradigm to God. God loves what is lovable. And I cannot hide and conceal from God anything. Therefore, God knows me better than anyone. He knows how unlovable I am. Therefore, God can't love me, at least in any authentic way. Meaning, at best, he's just going to have to tolerate me. But friends, this verse is telling you that that's actually not how God works. That's not how he does love. God 
loves because of his great love. God is love. He must love. His motivation is his very nature. Now, because we're not used to this as a paradigm of love, at first, it actually doesn't seem very loving, does it? We're used to saying, if you're lovable, I'll love you. And when we hear God say, now he actually loves you, despite the fact that you're unlovable, it means, well, then does he actually really love me? What you need to see is that this definition of love is the definition you are deeply, deeply, deeply longing to discover, and this is love that will set you free. This is a love that loves you not based upon what you have to offer. A love not based upon your beauty, which is fading. A love not motivated by your personality, which can be awkward and messy. Not motivated by your morals and righteousness, which is deeply flawed. Not by your intelligence, your success, by your family togetherness. Not by your discipline and the Christian faith. Not because you go to church or attend conferences or any other Christian thing you can do. A love that is not provoked and sustained by you, but by God's nature, which is love. If that's the case, then the love of God is unfailing. Or is it? Does there come a point when his great love with which he loves us comes to an end? I think that's our other fear. It's not just that we fear that God merely tolerates us. I think we fear that there comes a point where he will no longer tolerate us. Let's look now at the extent of God's mercy, of God's love. So the, the motivation is his great love. Not you, his great love. Now let's look at the extent of God's love for us. It says, God being rich in mercy. And just stop and ponder the meaning of those words. God is rich. God is wealthy. But his fortune is his mercy. And what this wealth of mercy allows him to do is keep loving you no matter what you do. Again, this is not how love works in our world. Tell me, by your experiences in this world, how many times can you wrong someone before you are rejected? Once? I mean... Outside, outside of covenantal things like marriage and family. stuff, so I'm talking about just the way our world works. How, how many times can you get away with wronging someone? Once, twice, maybe three times, I don't know. Whatever it is, it's not many. In fact, in our day of internet rage, one slip up, one wrongdoing, one mistake that makes its way online and literally the world is done with you. We're dead to you. For that one mistake. And this is why we have a hard time believing that God isn't done with us. How can he endure offense after offense after offense after offense? How can he possibly keep loving me when I keep hurting him? Answer, he's rich in mercy. My sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Now, how rich? How rich? How much wealth does this man have? 
Well, there's one word in this verse that makes it truly come alive. That glorious, and those who know the book of Ephesians, that this is a big turning point here at the beginning. It's that glorious but, but God. But what? Let me read the previous passage before this. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. But God is rich in mercy. When he chose to love you, You are not following him. You are following the course of this world. You are not passionate for him. You are passionate for the desires of the flesh. You are not by nature his. You are by nature children of wrath. What does it take to love people like us? A God who is filthy rich in mercy. Much more mercy than I have sins and I have a lot of sins. So... Where did he acquire such wealth? Where did he get all this mercy? What investment did he make that gave him this return of endless mercy? It's in our text. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here we go, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved here's what's going on there it is true that God is love God is love it is his nature he must love okay but it is simultaneously true that God is just it's his nature meaning he must do what is right and it is not right and just to love and not judge that which is unrighteous. And so here's the dilemma God faces. This is the predicament that we put him in, so to speak. He cannot love that which he must love. He must love. He must be just. Therefore, he cannot love what he has to love because he is love. And so we turn to the cost of love. Here is his solution. He will make us lovable in Christ Jesus. Or as Paul puts it here, he will make dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. He will make dead sinners come alive in Christ Jesus. But as you know, in order to make us alive in Christ Jesus would require the death of Christ Jesus. And this becomes the ultimate act and display of love. Ultimately, you know how much you are loved by how much it costs to love you. So what is the extent of God's love? How much does he love you? Well, how much did it cost him to make you alive in Christ Jesus? We look to Calvary and we find God's love knows no What is the motivation of God's love? His own love. What is the extent of God's love? 
the display of his own love on the cross. Now, application. The obvious and, yes, best application is the conference. (laughs) Go love your neighbor as God has loved you. You're loved by God, go love neighbor. True. But the point that I'm trying to make in this sermon And the reason why I'm concluding it all with this is that you can't love as you have been loved if you don't truly believe you are loved. So first and foremost, the application is to get refueled by the love of God. Let this love fill you to the uppermost. Perhaps, by the way, for the first time. Who knows? If you are here and you have not gotten lost In this love of God, I suppose my most honest and challenging answer question to you would be, why not? Where are you going to find love like this? Surely you realize how pretty much all you're doing is searching for love. And you still haven't found what you're looking for, to quote Bono. This is why you try so hard on a daily basis to put forth a you who isn't truly you, but a you that thinks will get you loved. Why are you doing this? Because you are dying to be loved. But let me ask you something. Aren't you exhausted? Is not the chase for love utterly exhausting but what if I could offer you a love that would love you not because of you you are not the motivating factor of this love not your weight not your complexion not whether you have the fashion down not whether you're successful enough not how much money is in your account not how your kids are acting perfectly not on a report card on a test A love that loves you not because of you, but because of love. And what if there was a love out there that could handle your failures? A love that doesn't choose to run and reject and cast you off at the first sign of adversity. A love that isn't scared of your junk. A love who knows more than you how unlovable you can be, but loves you still. A love that would die to purchase endless mercy that it requires to handle your endless failures. What if there was a love like that? I'm, I'm telling you there actually is. There actually is. Why in heaven's name would you say no to that love? He's there waiting to love you like this. So accept his love. And to those of us who have accepted it, here's my question to us. When did we stop accepting it? Why do we do that? It's weird. We come to God initially because we are amazed at his great love for us. We in some form or fashion hear what I just said and we get overwhelmed by a God who could love us like that. And we come to him on those terms in the name of his love that has captured us and then we start to grow as Christians. And the amazing thing about Christian growth is that we feel less loved by him. 
How does that make sense? Why is that the case? Here's my theory. We are converted by the gospel's vision of love that I've been talking about. But then as we walk with our God, we begin to redefine God's love according to the world's categories of love. But brothers and sisters, God doesn't love you like the world loves. So in the name of Jesus, would you just accept it? Can you do that? Can you just enjoy it? Could you accept it as in the hour you first accepted it? Can you believe as in the hour you first believed it? Can you enjoy it as in the hour you first enjoyed it? Can you discover it afresh as in the hour you first discovered it? What an insult it is to God for his beloved children to run around every day. Does he love me? Does he love me? Does he love me? What do I need to do today to make sure he loves me? Did I not do enough? Did I do things I wasn't supposed to do? Da, da, da. Just stop it, neurotic Christians. He loves you. He actually does love you. So, let his love overwhelm you. Let it touch every impoverished area of your love-hungry soul. Let it banish every fear and doubt that you're impossible to love. Let it heal every wound of failed love from this world. Let it fill you to the uppermost until it overflows to your neighbor. As long as you believe God only tolerates you, then you will only be able to tolerate your neighbor. You know what you do? You, you'll treat your neighbor like Mark treats you, okay? You'll love them because you have to, because they're there. And it's what I got to do. It's a Christian obligation. I went to the conference. I got to do this thing, I guess. But just like Mark's not fooling anyone, neither will you. Your neighbors, they'll know that's not love because it's not love. Brothers and sisters, our conference is not neighbor tolerance. It is neighbor love. For that to actually happen, then you have actually got to believe, yes, God loves you. Let me pray. Fill us with that love, oh God. We've preached it. Now we feast on it in the sacrament, this table of amazing love that represents how much it cost you to love us, which is endless. Fill our hearts that it might overflow to our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.